Welcome to Radio Davos, the podcast from the World Economic Forum that looks at the biggest challenges and how we might solve them. This week, artificial intelligence. Will the rise of intelligent machines help us solve our problems or just create more bigger ones? Whatever the movies tell you, machines becoming conscious and deciding that they hate humans and wanting to kill us is not really on the cards. That's the good news, but computer science professor Stuart Russell, one of the world's leading thinkers on artificial intelligence, tells us there are plenty of other perils from AI and we're experiencing some of them already. AI systems now are all over the place. Search engines are AI systems. Your smart speakers, machine translation, digital assistants on your phone, these are all AI systems. And some of those AI systems are actually changing who we are. The algorithms have learned to manipulate people, to change them. The way you maximize click-through is actually to send people a chain of content that turns them into somebody else who is more susceptible to clicking on whatever content you're going to be able to send them in future. And while the robots might not be coming for our lives, they will be coming for our jobs. If technology could make a twin of every person on Earth, and the twin was more cheerful and less hungover and willing to work for nothing, how many of us would still have our jobs? And the answer is zero. Join me, Robin Pomeroy, and my co-host this week, Kay Firth Butterfield of the World Economic Forum Center for the Fourth Industrial Revolution, as we talk to Professor Stuart Russell on the promises and perils of AI. In the future, we will have a choice. I hope that we don't just choose to stay in bed. We can actually live rich, interesting, fulfilling lives. Six out of ten people around the world expect artificial intelligence to profoundly change their lives in the next three to five years. That's according to a new Ipsos survey for the World Economic Forum, which spoke to almost 20,000 people in 28 countries. The same number, six in ten people, say products and services using AI make their lives easier in areas such as education, entertainment, transport, shopping, safety, the environment and food. But get this, only half of those people asked said they trust companies that use AI as much as they trust other companies. The full survey is available on the World Economic Forum website. To help me look more into AI, I was joined for the podcast by Kay Firth Butterfield, who's Head of Artificial Intelligence and Machine Learning at the World Economic Forum Centre for the Fourth Industrial Revolution. Here she is with me, introducing one of the world's foremost experts on AI. Indeed, he's sometimes referred to as the person who literally wrote the book on the subject, Professor Stuart Russell. Here's Kay. Thank you. It's my pleasure to introduce Stuart, who has written two books on artificial intelligence, Human Compatible Artificial Intelligence and The Problem of Control, But perhaps the one that you referred to saying that he had literally written the book on artificial intelligence, that is Artificial Intelligence, A Modern Approach. And that's the book from which most students around the world learn AI. You know, Stuart and I first met in 2014 at a lecture that he gave in the UK about his concerns around lethal autonomous weapons. And whilst we're not going to talk about that today, He's been working tirelessly at the UN for a ban on such weapons. Stuart's worked extensively with us at the World Economic Forum. In 2016, he became co-chair of the World Economic Forum's Global AI Council on AI and Robotics. And then in 2018, he joined our Global AI Council. As a member of that council, he galvanized us into thinking about how we could achieve positive futures with AI by planning and developing policies now to chart a course to that future. Great. Stuart, you're on the screen with us on Zoom. Very nice to meet you. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, It's really nice to join you and Kate. Where in the world are you at the moment? I'm in Berkeley, California. Well, you're a professor. Now, I've been listening to your lectures on BBC Radio 4 and the World Service, the Wreath Lectures. So I feel like I'm an expert in it now, as I wasn't a couple of weeks ago. Let's start right at the very beginning, though. For someone who only has a vague idea of what artificial intelligence is, we all know what computers are, we use apps. I mean, how much of that is artificial intelligence? Um, Where is it going to take us in the future beyond what we already have? It's actually surprisingly difficult to draw a hard and fast line and say, well, this this piece of software is AI and that piece of software isn't AI. Uh, because within the field, when we think about AI, well, the, the object that we discuss is something we call an agent, right? which means something that acts uh, on the basis of 
whatever it has perceived. And the perceptions could be through a camera, through a keyboard. Uh, the actions could be displaying things on a screen or turning the steering wheel of a self-driving car or uh, firing a shell from a tank or whatever it might be. Um, and the goal of AI is to make sure that the actions that come out are actually the right ones, meaning the ones that will actually achieve uh, the objectives that we've set for the agent. Um, and this maps onto a concept that's been around for a long time in economics and philosophy uh, called the rational agent. Uh, so the agent whose actions can be expected to achieve its objectives. Uh, and so that's what we try to do. And they can be very, very simple. A thermostat is an agent. It has perception, just measures the temperature. It has action, switch on or off the heater. Uh, and it sort of has two very, very simple rules. If it's too hot, turn it off. If it's too cold, turn it on. And uh, you know, is that AI? Well, actually, it doesn't really matter whether you want to call that AI or not. So there's no hard and fast dividing line. Like, well, if it's got 17 rules, then it's AI. If it's only got 16, then it's not AI, right? That wouldn't, that wouldn't make sense. So we just think of it as, as a continuum from extremely simple agents to extremely complex agents like humans. And AI systems now are all over the place in the economy. Uh, you know, search engines are AI systems. Um, they're actually not just keyword lookup systems anymore. They are trying to understand your query. Uh, about a third of all the queries going into search engines are actually answered by knowledge bases, uh, not by just giving you web pages where you can find the answer. They actually tell you the answer uh, because they have a lot of knowledge uh, in machine readable form. Um, you know, your smart speakers, your, you know, the digital assistants on your phone, these are all AI systems. Machine translation, which I use a lot because I have to pay taxes in France. Um, and, uh, you know, so it does a great job of translating impenetrable French tax legislation into impenetrable English tax legislation. So it doesn't really help me very much, but it's a very good translation. Um, and, you know, and then the self-driving car, I think you would say that's a pretty canonical application of AI that stresses many things, right? The ability to perceive, to understand the situation uh, and to make complex decisions that, that actually have to take into account risk uh, and the many possible eventualities that can arise uh, as we drive around. Um, and then, of course, at the, at the very high end, uh, human beings. Some point in the future, machines... AI will be able to do everything a human can do, but better. Is that the thing we're, we're moving towards? Yeah, this has always been the goal, uh, what I call general purpose AI. There are other names for it, human level AI, super intelligent AI, artificial general intelligence. But I settled on general purpose AI because it's a little bit less threatening than super intelligent AI. Um, and, uh, and as you say, it means AI systems that uh, for any task that human beings can do with their intellects, uh, the AI system will be able to, uh, if not do it already, to very quickly learn how to do it um, and do it as well as or better than humans. And I think most people understand that once you reach a human level on any particular task, it's not that hard then to go beyond the human level because machines have such massive advantages uh, in computation speed, in bandwidth, uh, you know, the, the ability to store and retrieve stuff from memory at, at vast rates that humans, human brains can't possibly match. Kay, I'm going to hand over to you now. I'm going to take a back seat. I'll be your co-host, if you like. I'm bursting with questions as well, so I'll annoyingly cut in. But basically, for the rest of this interview, all yours. Thank you. You talked to Stuart a little bit about some of the examples of AI that we're encountering all the time. But one of the ways that AI is being used every day by um, human beings, from the youngest to the oldest, is in social media. And we hear a great deal about radicalization through social media. Indeed, at a recent conference I attended, Cedric O, the IT Minister of France, described AI as the biggest threat to democracy existing at the moment. I wonder whether you could actually explain for our listeners how the current use of AI drives that 
polarization of ideas? So I think this is an incredibly important question. The problem with answering your question is that we actually don't know the answer because the facts are hidden away in the vaults of the social media companies. Uh, and those facts are basically uh, trillions of events per week, trillions, because we have billions of people engaging with social media hundreds of times a day. Um, and every one of those engagements, clicking, swiping, dismissing, liking, disliking, thumbs upping, thumbs downing, you name it, all right, all of that data uh, is inaccessible. Uh, even, for example, to Facebook's oversight board, which is supposed to be actually keeping track of this, that's why they made it, uh, but that board doesn't have access uh, to the internal data. So there is some anecdotal evidence, there are some data sets on which we are able to do uh, some analysis uh, that's suggestive, but I would say it's not conclusive. However, if you think about the way the algorithms work, what they're trying to do is uh, basically maximize click-through, right? They want you to click on things, engage with content, or spend time on the platform, which is a slightly different metric, but basically the same thing. Um, and you might say, well, okay, the only way to get people to click on things is to send them things they're interested in. So what's wrong with that? Right? But that's not the answer. That's not the way you maximize click-through. The way you maximize click-through is actually to send people a chain of content that turns them into somebody else who is more susceptible uh, to clicking on whatever content you're going to be able to send them in future. So the algorithms have, uh, at least according to the mathematical models that we've built, uh, the algorithms have learned to manipulate people, to change them, uh, so that in future, uh, they're more susceptible and they, they can be monetized at a higher rate. Now, at the same time, of course, there's a massive human-driven industry that sprung up to feed uh, this whole process, the clickbait industry, the disinformation industry. So people have hijacked the ability of the algorithms to very rapidly change people because it's hundreds of interactions a day. Everyone has a little nudge. But if you nudge somebody hundreds of times a day for days on end, uh, you can move them a long way in terms of their beliefs, their preferences, their opinions. The algorithms don't care what opinions you have. They just care that you're susceptible uh, to uh, stuff that they send. Um, but of course, people do care and they hijack the process uh, to uh, take advantage of it and, and create the polarization that suits them. You know, I think it's essential that we actually get more visibility. AI researchers want it because we want to understand this and see if we can actually fix it. Uh, governments want this because they're really afraid that their whole social structure is disintegrating um, or that they're being undermined uh, by other countries who, who don't have their best interests at heart. Stuart, do we know whether that's a kind of a, a byproduct of the algorithms or whether a human at some point has, has built that into the algorithms, this, this polarization. I think it's a byproduct, right? I mean, I'm, I'm willing to give the social media platforms some benefit of the doubt uh, that they, they didn't intend this. Um, but one of the things that we know uh, is that when algorithms work well in a sense that they generate lots of revenue and profit for the company, uh, that creates a lot of pressure not to change the algorithm. Um, and so whether it's conscious or unconscious, um, the algorithms are in some sense protected by this, you know, this multinational superstructure that's generating, uh, you know, enjoying the billions of dollars that are generated and wants to protect that revenue stream. Stuart, you used the word manipulating us, but you also said the algorithms don't care. Can you just explain what, what one of these algorithms would look like? Presumably, it doesn't care because it doesn't know anything about human beings. That's right. It doesn't know that human beings exist at all. From the algorithm's point of view, each person is simply uh, a click history. So what what was presented and did you or did you not click on it? Uh, and so let's say the last hundred or the last thousand such interactions, that's you. 
right? And then the algorithm learns, okay, how do I take that, those thousand interactions and choose the next thing to send? And so that's, uh, we call that a policy uh, that decides what's the next thing to send given the history of interactions. And the policy is learned over time in order to maximize the long-term rate of clicking. And so it's not just trying to choose the next best thing that you're going to click on. It's also just because of the way the algorithm is constructed. Uh, it's choosing the thing that is going to yield the best results in the long term. Just as if, if I want to get to San Francisco from here, right, I make a, a long term plan and then I start executing the plan, which, which involves getting up out of my chair uh, and then doing some other things, right? Um, and so the algorithm is in, sort of embarking on this journey and it's learned how to get to these destinations where people are more predictable. Uh, and it's predictability that the algorithm cares about uh, in terms of maximizing revenue. The algorithms wouldn't be conscious anyway, but it's not, it's not deliberate in the sense that it, it has an explicit objective to radicalize people or cause them to become terrorists or, or anything like that. Uh, now, future algorithms that actually know much more that, you know, that no people do exist and that we have minds uh, and that, you know, we have a particular kind of psychology and different susceptibilities uh, could be much more effective. And I think this is, this is one of the things that um, is, is all, it, it feels a little bit like a paradox at first, right, that the better the AI the worse the outcome. You talked about learning, the algorithm's learning. That's something that I think quite a lot of people don't really understand because uh, we use software. We've been using software for a long time, but this is slightly different. Actually, much of the software that we have been using was created by a learning process. Um, for example, speech recognition systems uh, there isn't someone typing in a rule for how do you distinguish between cat and cut, right? Uh, we just give the algorithm lots of examples of cat and lots of examples of cut. Uh, and then the algorithm learns the distinguishing rule by tweaking the parameters of, uh, of some kind of, think of it as a big circuit with lots of tunable weights or connection strengths in the circuit. And then as you tune all those weights in the circuit, uh, the output of the circuit will change and it'll start becoming better at distinguishing between cat and cut. And you're trying to tune those weights to agree with the training data, uh, the labeled examples, as we say, or the cats and the cuts. And as that process of tuning all the weights proceeds, eventually it will give you a perfect or near perfect performance on the training data. Uh, and then you hope that when a new example of cat or cut comes along, that it succeeds in classifying it correctly. And so that's how we train speech recognition systems. And that's been true for four decades. We're a little bit better at it now. Uh, so our speech recognition systems are more accurate, much more robust. You know, it'll uh, be able to understand what you're saying, even when you're driving a car and, and talking on a crackly cell phone line. Uh, it's good enough now to understand that speech. When you buy speech recognition software, for example, dictation software, there's often a, uh, what you might call a post-purchase learning phase, right, where it's already pretty good, but by training on your voice specifically, it can become even better. So it will give you a few sentences to read out. Um, and then that additional data means that it can be even more accurate on you. And so you can think of what's going on in the social media algorithms as like that, a sort of post-purchase uh, customization. It's learning about you. So initially, it can recommend articles that are of interest to general, the general population, you know, which seems to be Kim Kardashian, as far as I can tell. Um, but then after interacting with you for a while, it will learn, actually, no, I'd rather get the, the cricket scores or something like that. Is it the same for facial recognition? Because we hear a lot about facial recognition and facial recognition perhaps making mistakes about around people of color. Is that because the data is wrong? Usually it's not because the data is wrong in that case. It's because the data uh, has many fewer examples of 
particular types of people. And so when you have few examples, the accuracy on that subset will be worse. This is a very controversial question, and it's actually quite hard to to get agreement among the, the various different parties to the debate about whether uh, one can eliminate these disparities in recognition rates by actually making more representative data sets. And of course, there isn't one perfectly representative data set because it would depend on, well, you know, what's a perfectly representative data set if you're in Namibia or Japan or Iceland or uh, you know, Mongolia the, the wouldn't necessarily be appropriate to use exactly the same data set for, for all those four settings. And so yeah. these, these questions become not so much technical, but socio-technical, right? What matters is what happens when you deploy the AI system in a particular context and it operates for a while, right? It, there are many things that go on. Right? So, for example, people might start avoiding places where there are cameras, um, but maybe only one type of person avoids the places where there are cameras and the other people don't mind. And so now you, you created a new bias in the collection of data. Um, and that bias is really hard to understand because you can't predict who's going to avoid the area with the cameras. Um, and so understanding that, we're we're nowhere near uh, having uh, a real engineering discipline or, or scientific approach to understanding the sort of socio-technical embedding of AI systems, uh, what effect they can have, what effect society has on them and their operation. And then, you know, is, is the whole thing, are we all better off as a result or are we all worse off as a result? And, you know, early anecdotes suggest that there's all kinds of weird ways that things go wrong that you just don't expect. Um, because we're not used to thinking about this. Now, if you're in city planning, they have learned over centuries that weird things happen when you, you know, you broaden a road, you think, oh, every, you know, that's going to improve traffic flow. But it turns out that sometimes making bigger roads makes the traffic flow worse. Um, and, you know, same thing, you know, should you add a bridge across the river? So they've learned to actually think through the consequences, you know, pedestrianizing a street, you might think, oh, that's good, but then it just moves the traffic somewhere else and things get worse uh, in the next neighborhood. So there's all kinds of complicated things and we're just beginning to uh, explore these and we don't really yet have a proper discipline. There is no equivalent of city planning for AI systems and their socio-technical embeddings. Back in 2019, I think it was, you came to me with a suggestion and that was to truly optimize the benefits to humans of AI and in particular general purpose AI, which we spoke to uh, Robin about earlier. We need to rethink the political and social systems we use. We were going to lock people in a room and those people were specifically going to be economists and sci-fi writers. We never did that because we got covid but we had such fantastically interesting workshops. And I wonder whether you could tell us a little bit about why you thought that was important and the sort of ideas that came out of it. Yeah, so I just want to reassure the viewers that we didn't literally plan to lock people into a room, but it was a metaphorical <laughs> sense. So the concern or the question was really uh, about what happens when general purpose AI hits the real economy, right? How do things change? Um, and can we adapt to that uh, without having a huge amount of dislocation? Because, you know, this is a very old point, right? I mean, even uh, amazingly, Aristotle actually has a passage where he, he says, look, if we had fully automated weaving machines and fully automated plectrums that could pluck the lyre and produce music without any humans, um, then we wouldn't need any workers. And, um, you know, it's a pretty amazing thing for 350 BC. That idea, which I think it was Keynes who called it technological unemployment in 1930, is very obvious to people, right? They think, yeah, of course, if the machine does the work, then I'm going to be unemployed, right? And the, you know, the Luddites worried about that. For a long time, economists uh, actually thought 
that they had a mathematical proof that technological unemployment was impossible. But, you know, if you think about it, right, if technology could make a twin of every person on earth and the twin was more cheerful and less hungover and willing to work for nothing, right, well, how many of us would still have our jobs, right? I think the answer is zero. Um, so there's something wrong with the economist's mathematical theorem. Over the last decade or so, I think uh, opinion in economics has really shifted. And it was, in fact, the first Davos meeting that I ever went to in 2015. There was a dinner supposedly to discuss the new digital economy. But the economists you know, who got up, you know, there were several Nobel Prize winners there, other very distinguished economists, and they sort of got up one by one and said, you know, actually, I don't want to talk about the digital economy. I want to talk about AI and technological unemployment. And this is the biggest problem we face in the world at least from the economic point of view, because as far as they could see it, as general purpose AI you know, became more and more of a real thing right now, we're not very close to it, but as we move there, uh, we'll see AI systems capable of carrying out more and more of the tasks uh, that humans do at work. Um, so just to give you one example, right? If you think about the warehouses that Amazon and other companies are currently operating, um, for e-commerce, um, they are half automated, right? And the way the way it works is that um, instead of having you know old, old, an old warehouse where you've got tons of stuff piled up all over the place, and then you know the humans go and rummage around and uh, and then bring it back and send it off, there's a robot who goes and gets the shelving unit that contains the thing that you need and brings it to the human worker. So the human worker stands in one place and these robots are going and collecting shel shelving units of stuff and bringing them. Um, but the human has to pick the object out of the bin or the off the shelf because that's still too difficult, right? And there's, let's say, you know, three or four million people with that job in the world, right? Um, but, you know, at the same time, Amazon was running a competition for bin picking. You know, could you make a robot that uh, is accurate enough to be able to pick pretty much any object? Because then there's a very wide variety of objects that uh, you can buy. Uh, pretty much any object from shelves, bins, etc. Uh, do it accurately and then uh, send it off to the dispatch unit. Um, and that would, in a, at a stroke, eliminate three or four million jobs. Uh, and the system is already set up to do that, right? So it wouldn't wouldn't require then rejigging everything, right? You'd really just be uh, putting a robot in the place where the human was. Um, and so, uh, you know, people worry about self-driving cars. Um, you know, as that becomes a reality, then a uh, self-driving taxi is going to be maybe a quarter of the price of a regular taxi. And so you can see what would happen, right? Uh, and there's about, I think, 25 million people formal or informal taxi drivers in the world. Um, so that's a somewhat bigger impact. And then, of course, this, this continues with each new capability. More, uh, more tasks are, are automated. And can we keep up uh, with that rate of change uh, in terms of finding other things that people will do and then training them to, to do those new things that um, they may not know how to do? So it's all very well saying, Oh, we'll just retrain everyone to be data scientists. But you know, number one, we don't need two and a half billion data scientists. Uh, you know, we're not even sure we need two and a half million data scientists. Um, so it's a drop in the bucket. Um, but other things like yeah, we need more people who can uh, you know do geriatric care. But it's not that easy to take a you know someone who's been a truck driver for twenty five years and retrain them to be in the geriatric care industry, um, and so on. Um, you know, tutoring of young children. Uh, there's, there's many other things that are unmet needs in our world. I think that's, I think, obvious to almost everyone that are unmet needs um, that, uh, you know, it's, machines may be able to fulfill some of those needs, but humans can only meet them if uh, they are trained and have the knowledge and and aptitude and, and even inclination uh, to do those kinds of, of jobs. So the question we were asking is, okay, this process continues. 
general purpose AI is doing pretty much everything we currently call work. What is the world going to look like? Or what would a world look like that you would want your children to go into, right? To, to live in. Um, and uh, when we look in science fiction, there are models for worlds that seem quite desirable, um, but as economies, they don't hang together, right? So economists say, well, this is, you know, not, the incentives wouldn't work in that world. And, you know, these people would stop doing that uh, and those people would do this instead and, and it would all, it would, just wouldn't be stable. Uh, you know, and the economists, they don't really invent things, right? They just talk about, you know, well, we could raise this tax or we could, you know, de decrease this interest rate. Uh, the economists at Davos that, that we're talking all said, well, you know, perhaps we could have private unemployment insurance. Well, yeah, that, that really solves the problem. So I wanted to put these two groups together, right? So you could sort of get imagination tempered by real economic understanding. I'm curious to know who, who were the optimists and who were the pessimists between the economists and the science fiction writers? Science fiction, I imagine they love a bit of dystopia and things going horribly wrong. But I wonder whether the flip side of that is actually they've got a more optimistic outlook than the economists who are embedded in the real world where, they, where things really are going wrong all the time. Did you notice a trend either way? The science fiction writers, are, as you say, they're fond of dystopias, but the economists mostly are uh, pessimistic, uh, at least certainly the ones at the dinner, and, and I've been interacting with many uh, during these workshops. Um, I think there's still uh, a view of you know many economists that you because know, there are there are compensating effects, right? It's not as simple as saying if the machine does job X, then the person isn't doing job X, and so the person is unemployed, right? It's, there are these compensating effects, so. Um, if the machine is doing something uh, more cheaply, more efficiently, more productively, uh, then that increases uh, total wealth, which then increases demand for all the other jobs in the economy. And so uh, you get this uh, sort of recycling of labor from uh, areas that are becoming automated uh, to areas that are still not automated. But if you automate everything, Right then, this is the argument about the twins. Right, it's like making a twin of everyone who's willing to work for nothing, um, and so you have to think: Well, are there areas where um, we aren't going to be automating, either because we don't want to, or because humans are just intrinsically better? So uh, this is one, I think, optimistic view, uh, and I think you could argue that Keynes had this view. Um, you know, he called it perfecting the art of life, right? We'll, we'll be faced with man's permanent problem, which is how to live uh, agreeably and wisely and well, right? And those people who cultivate better the art of life uh, will be much more successful in, the, in this future. Um, and so cultivating the art of life is something that humans understand. We understand what life is. Um, and uh, we can do that for each other because we are so similar. We have the, the same nervous systems. And I, I often use the example of hitting your thumb with a hammer, right? If you've ever done that, then you know what it's like and you can empathize with someone else who does it, right? You don't need a PhD in neuroscience to know what it's like to hit your thumb with a hammer. And if you haven't done it, well, you can just do it. Uh, and now you know what it's like, right? So there's this intrinsic advantage that we have for knowing what's like, knowing what it's like, you know, to be jilted by the love of your life, knowing what it's like to lose a parent, uh, knowing what it's like to, you know, to come bottom in your class at school uh, and so on. So we have this um, extra uh, comparative advantage over machines, that means that those, those kinds of uh, professions, the interpersonal professions, are likely to be ones that uh, humans will uh, have a, a real advantage and will actually more and more people, I think, will be moving into that area. But it's, I think for some interpersonal professions like executive coach, those are relatively well-paid um, because you know, they're providing services to 
to very rich people and corporations. Uh, but others, like babysitting, uh, are extremely poorly paid, even though supposedly we care enormously about our children, right? You know, more than we care about our CEO. Um, but we pay someone, you know, $5 an hour and everything you can eat from the fridge to look after our children, right? Whereas, you know, if we break a leg, we pay an orthopedic surgeon $5,000 an hour um, and everything he can eat from the fridge to, uh, to, fix our, to fix our broken leg. Why is that? Well, it's because he knows how to do it, right? And the babysitter doesn't really know how to do it. Some are, some are good and some are absolutely terrible, like the babysitter who taught me and my, or tried to teach me and my sister to smoke when we were uh, seven and Someone's got to do it. Someone's, someone's got to do it. You know, so in order for this vision of the future to work, we need a completely different science base, right? We need a science base that's oriented towards the human sciences. How, how do you make someone else's life better? Right? How do you educate an individual child with their individual personalities and traits and characteristics and everything uh, so that they have, uh, as Keynes called it, you know, uh, uh, the ability to live wisely and agreeably and well? And we, so, we know so little about that. Um, and it's going to take a long time to shift our whole scientific research orientation and our education system. Uh, to make this vision actually uh, an economically viable one. If that's the, the destination, then we need to start preparing for that journey uh, sooner rather than later. And so that's so the idea of these workshops was to envision these possible destinations um, and, uh, and then figure out what are the policy implications for the present. And so these destinations, we're talking about something in the future. I know that this may be crystal ball gazing, but when might we expect general purpose AI so that, you know, so that we can be prepared? You say we need to prepare now. I think this is a very difficult question to answer. It's also, it's not the case, it's all, all or nothing, right? The impact is going to be increasing. So with every advance in AI, it significantly expands the range of tasks uh, that can be done. So, you know, we've been working on self-driving cars and the first demonstrated freeway driving was 1987. Uh, why has it taken so long? Well, because mainly the perceptual capabilities of the systems were inadequate. And some of that was just hardware, right? You, you just need massive amounts of hardware to process high resolution, high, free, uh, high frame rate video. Um, and that problem has been largely solved. And so, uh, you know, with visual perception, now a whole range, not just self-driving cars, but you can start to think about uh, robots that can work in agriculture, the robots that can do the part picking in the warehouse, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, just that one thing is easily has the potential to impact uh, 500 million jobs. And then as you get to language understanding, uh, you know, that could be another 500 million jobs. And then so, so each of these changes uh, causes this big expansion. Um, and so these things will happen. It, the actual date of arrival of general purpose AI, uh, you, you're not going to be able to pinpoint, right? It isn't a single day, right? It isn't like, oh, today it arrived. You know, yesterday we didn't have it today, right? So, um, so... In that sense, um, I, I think most experts say by the end of the century, we're very, very likely to have general purpose AI. Um, the median is something around 2045. Uh, and so that's not so long, you know, that's less than 30 years from now. Um, I'm a little more on the conservative side. I think the problem is harder than we think. Uh, but I, I like what John McCarthy, who was sort of one of the founders of AI, when he was asked this question, he said, well, somewhere between five and 500 years. Uh, and we're going to need, I think, several Einsteins to make it happen. On the bright side, if these machines are going to be so brilliant, come, will there come a day when we just say, fix global hunger, 
fix climate change and off they go and you set them six months or whatever to, to you know a reasonable amount of time and suddenly they fix climate change in one of your wreath lectures you actually you broach the climate change subject and you, you actually reduce it to one area of climate change the acidification of the oceans and you, you envisage a, you envisage a scenario where a machine can fix the acidification of the oceans that's been caused by climate change but there's a big but there and and, and Perhaps you can tell us what the problem is when you set a, an AI off to do a specific job. There's a big difference between uh, asking a human to do something and asking uh, and giving that as the objective to an AI system. Uh, when you ask a human to fetch you a cup of coffee, you don't mean this should be their life's mission and nothing else in the universe matters, even if they have to kill everybody else in Starbucks to get you the coffee before it closes, um, they should do that. No, that's not what you mean, right? You mean, and of course, all the other things that we we mutually care about, you know, they, they should factor into your behavior as well. Uh, and the problem with the way we build AI systems now is we we give them a fixed objective, right? We The algorithms require us to specify everything in the objective. And if you say, you know, can we fix the acidification of the oceans? Yeah, you could have a catalytic reaction that does that extremely efficiently, but you know consumes a quarter of the oxygen in the atmosphere, um, which would uh, apparently cause us to die fairly slowly and unpleasantly uh, over over the course of several hours. Um, so, um, how do we avoid this problem? Right? You might say, okay, well, just be more careful about specifying the objective. Right? Don't don't forget the yeah, atmospheric oxygen. Um, but, you know, and then of course, do it, it might produce, you know, a side, you know, some, uh, side effect of the reaction in the ocean poisons all the fish. Okay. Well, I meant don't, yeah, don't kill the fish either. And then, well, what about the seaweed? Okay. Well, don't, don't, don't do anything that's going to cause all the seaweed to die and on and on and on. Right. Um, and the reason that, um, we don't have to do that with humans is that, uh, humans often know that they don't know all the things that we care about. And so they are likely to come back. And so if, if you ask a human to get you a cup of coffee, you know, and you happen to be in the Hotel Georges Sank in Paris, where the coffee is, I think, 13 euros a cup, right? It's entirely reasonable to come back and say, well, it's 13 euros. Are you sure you want, or I could go next door and, you know, get one you know, for, for much less, right? And so... Um, that's because you might not know how, you know, their, you know, price elasticity for coffee, right? So you don't know whether they want to spend that much. Um, and it's a perfectly normal thing for a person to do, right? To ask, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to repaint your house. You know, is it okay if I take off uh, the drain pipes and then put them back? Um, you know, we don't think of this as a terribly sophisticated capability, but AI systems don't have it. Uh, because the way we build them now, they have to know the full objective. Um, and in my book, Human Compatible, that, that Kay mentioned, uh, the sort of main point is if we build systems that know that they don't know what the objective is, um, then they start to exhibit these behaviors, like asking permission before getting rid of all the oxygen in the atmosphere, right? Uh, and they do that because that's a change to the world and the algorithm may not know is that something we prefer or disprefer. And so it has an incentive to ask uh, because it wants to avoid doing anything that's dispreferred. Uh, so you get much more robust, controllable behavior. And in, in the extreme case, if we want to switch the machine off, uh, it actually wants to be switched off because it wants to avoid doing whatever it is that uh, is upsetting us it wants to avoid it it doesn't know which which thing it's doing is upsetting us but it wants to avoid that so it wants us to switch it off if that's what we want um, so in all these senses um, control over the ai system comes from the machine's uncertainty about what the true objective is and it's it's when you build machines that believe with certainty that they have the objective right that's when you get the sort of psychopathic 
uh, behavior. And I think we see the same thing in humans. And um, would that help with those basic algorithms that we were talking about or not so basic algorithms that are leading us down the journey of radicalization, Stuart? Or is it only applicable in the general purpose AI? Uh, no, it's applicable everywhere. We've actually been building algorithms that are designed along these lines. And, um, you know, you can, you can actually set it up as a formal mathematical problem. We call it an assistance game. Uh, and so game in the sense of game theory, which means decision problems that involve more than one entity. So it, it involves the machine and the human that's actually coupled together by this uncertainty about the human objective. And um, you can solve those assistance games. You can mathematically you know, derive algorithms that come up with a solution. And you can look at the solution and, gosh, yeah, it asks permission. Or, you know, the human, actually, the human half of this solution actually wants to teach the machine uh, because it wants to make sure the machine does understand human preferences uh, so that it avoids making mistakes. Um, and so the with social media, um, this is probably the hardest problem because um, it's not just that it's doing things we don't like, it's actually changing our preferences. And that's, that's a sort of a, a failure mode, if you like, of, uh, of any AI system that's trying to satisfy human preferences, which sounds like a very reasonable thing to do, right? One way to satisfy them is to change them so that they're already satisfied, right? Um, you know, and I think politicians are pretty good at doing this, right? Uh, and we don't want AI systems doing that. But it's sort of the, the wicked problem because um, it's not as if all the users of social media hate themselves, right? They don't, they're not sitting there saying, how dare you turn me into this raving neo-fascist, right? They, they believe that their newfound neo-fascism is actually the right thing, and they were just deluded beforehand. Um, and so it, it gets to some of the most difficult uh, current problems in moral philosophy. How do you act on behalf of someone whose preferences are changing over time? Right? Do you, do you act on behalf of the present person or the future person? Uh, which one? And, you know, we don't, there isn't a good answer to that question. Uh, and I think it points to actually gaps, gaps in our understanding of moral philosophy. Um, so in that sense, uh, what's happening in social media uh, is really difficult to unravel. Um, but I think one, one of the things that I would recommend um, is simply a change in mindset in the uh, you know, in the social media platforms, right? Rather than thinking, okay, how can we generate revenue? Think, what do our users care about? What do they want the future to be like? What do they want themselves to be like? Um, and if we don't know, and I think the answer is we don't know, right? I mean, we've got billions of users. They're all different. They all have different preferences. We don't know what those are. Um, Think about ways of having systems that uh, are initially very uncertain about the true preferences of the user um, and try to learn more about those, but while sort of respecting them. So the, the most difficult part is you can't say, don't touch the user's preferences, right? Under no circumstances are you allowed to change the user's preferences because just you know, reading the Financial Times changes your preferences, right? Uh, you, you become more informed. Uh, you, you learn about all sorts of different points of view. Uh, and, uh, and then you're a different person. And we want people to be different people over time. We don't want to remain newborn babies forever. Um, but we don't have a, a good way of saying, well, this process of changing a person into a new person is good. Right. And we think of, you know, university education is good or, you know, global travel is good. You know, those usually make people better people. Um, whereas, you know, brainwashing is bad and, you know, joining a cult, you know, what cults do to people is bad uh, and so on. But, you know, what's going on in, in social media is right at the place where we don't know how to answer these questions. 
So uh, we really need some help from moral philosophers and, and other thinkers. And you quoted from Keynes earlier saying that when the machines are doing all our work for us, humans will be able to cultivate this. They'll, they'll live the fullest possible life in an age of plenty. But of course, he was writing that before everyone was scrolling through social media in their downtime. There's an interesting story that E.M. Forster wrote. Um, so, you know, E.M. Forster usually wrote novels about British upper-class society and, and the, you know, the decay of Victorian morals and this, that, and the other. But he wrote a science fiction story in 1909 called The Machine Stops, which I highly recommend, uh, where uh, everyone is, is entirely machine-dependent. Uh, they use email. They suffer from email backlogs. Uh, they, they do a lot of video conferencing for Zoom, Zoom meetings. Um, you know, they have iPads. Um, they, they start to shun face-to-face -face contact. How could E.M. Forster have written about iPads? <laughs> well, they, yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, he calls it a video, a video disc, um, but, you know, it's exactly an iPad. And then, um, you know, people become obese from not getting any exercise because they're glued to their email on their screens all the time. Um, and the, the story is really about the fact that, um, that if you hand over the management of your civilization to machines, uh, you then lose the incentive to understand it yourself or, or to teach the next generation how to understand it. Uh, and, and you could see Wall-E actually as a modern version of the machine stops where everyone is enfeebled and infantilized by the machine because we, we lost the incentive uh, to actually understand and run our own civilization. Um, and that hasn't been possible up to now, right? We, we put a lot of our civilization, civilization into books, but the books can't run it for us, right? And so we always have to teach the next generation. And if you work it out, it's about a trillion person years of teaching and learning and an unbroken chain that goes back tens of thousands of generations. Um, and what happens if that chain breaks? And I think that's, you know, that's what the story is about. And that's something we have to understand ourselves as AI moves forward. On the optimistic side, though, I suppose current generations have at their fingertips knowledge and wisdom that we just didn't have 30 years ago. So if I want to read the poetry of William Shakespeare, it, I don't need to go to a library or a bookshop. It's right there in front of me or hear the symphonies or learn how to play the piano i you know I, I envy people who are 30 years younger than me because they've got all this access to that knowledge and that information if they choose not to be wally they've never heard of william shakespeare or mozart right they can tell you the names of all the characters in all the video games but <laughs> so uh you know i and i think this this comes back to the discussion we were having earlier about how we need to think about our education system. So even if you just believe Keynes's view of, you know, his rosy view of the future didn't involve an economy based on interpersonal services, but just people living happy lives uh, and maybe a lot of voluntary interactions and sort of non-economic system. But he still felt like we would need to understand how to educate people to live such a life successfully. And our current system doesn't do that. It's not about that. It's actually educating people to fulfill different sorts of economic functions, um, you know, like and, and design, some people argue, for the British civil service of the late Victorian period. Um, and uh, how you do that, we don't have a lot of experience uh, with that. So we have to learn it. You've talked a bit about um, the things that we need to do in order to control general purpose um, intelligence. And we talked about how they're applicable to um, social media today. Asimov had three principles of robotics, and I think you've got three principles of your own that you hope and are testing would work to ensure that um, all AI prioritizes us humans. Stuart, before you answer it, could I just remind the listeners what the three laws are? I've just gone onto my AI Wikipedia to find out what they are. So this is from the science fiction writer Isaac Asimov. The first law, a robot 
may not injure a human being or through inaction allow a human being to come to harm. The second law, a robot must obey the orders given it by human beings, except where such orders would conflict with the first law. The third law is a robot must protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or second law. So, Stuart, what yeah. what have you come up with along those lines? Well, so, I mean, I, I had three principles sort of as a homage to Asimov. But Asimov's rules in, in the stories, these are laws that in some sense the algorithms in the robots are constantly consulting so they can decide what to do, right? Um, and I think of the, the three principles that I give in the book as being guides for... AI researchers and how you set up the mathematical problem that your algorithm is is a solution to. Um, and so the, the three principles, um, the first one is that the, the only objective uh, for all machines is the satisfaction of human preferences. Uh, and preferences is actually a term from economics. It doesn't just mean, well, what kind of pizza do you like or who did you vote for? Uh, it really means what is your ranking over all possible futures for everything that matters. So it's a, it's a very, very big, complicated, abstract thing, uh, most of which you would never be able to explicate uh, even if you tried. Uh, and some of which you literally don't know because, I, you know, I, I literally don't know whether I'm going to like durian fruit uh, if I eat it. Some people absolutely love it and some people find it absolutely disgusting. Uh, I don't know which kind of person I am, so I literally can't tell you, you know, do I like the future where I'm eating durian every day? Um, so uh, so that's the first principle, right? We want uh, the machines to be uh, satisfying human preferences. Second principle is that uh, the machine does not know what those preferences are, right? So it has initial uncertainty about human preferences. Um, and we already talked about the fact that this, the sort of humility uh, is what enables us to retain control. It makes the machines, in some sense, deferential to human beings. The third principle really just grounds what we mean by preferences in the first two principles, and it says that um, uh, human behavior is the source of evidence for human preferences, and you know that can be unpacked a bit. Uh, and, and basically, you know, the the model is that humans have these preferences about the future um, and that those preferences are what cause us to make the choices that we make, right? And behavior means, you know, every, everything we do, everything we don't do, speaking, not speaking, sitting, you know, reading your email while you're watching this lecture uh, or this, this interview um, and, and so on. So um, with those principles, when we when we turn them into a mathematical problem, right? We, this is what uh, we mean by the assistance game, um, and so there are there are significant differences from from Asimov's. I think some aspects of Asimov's principles are reflected because um, the the idea of not allowing a human to come to harm uh, is. You know, I think you could translate that into yeah, satisfy human preferences. I think harm harm is sort of the opposite of preferences, and so satisfying human preferences. But um, the language of Asimov's principles actually uh, reflects a mindset that was sort of pretty common uh, up until the fifties and sixties, which was that uncertainty didn't really matter very much, uh, and so you could sort of say you know guarantee no harm. Right. But think about it, right? A self-driving car that followed Asimov's first law would never leave the garage because there is no way to guarantee safety on the freeway. All right, you just can't do it, right? Because someone else can always just sideswipe you and squish you. And um, so you have to take into account uh, uncertainty uh, about the world, about how the other agents are going to behave. Uh, you know, the fact that your own sensors don't give you complete and correct information about the state of the world. So there's lots of uncertainty uh, all over the place. You know, like, where is my car? Well, I can't see my car. I'm, I'm sitting in my house. It's down there somewhere, uh, but I'm not sure it's still there. Someone might have might have stolen it while we've been having this conversation. So there's, you know, there's uncertainty about almost everything in the world, and you have to uh, take account of that in decision-making. Um, 
The third law says, okay, the robot needs to preserve its own existence as long as that doesn't conflict with the first two laws. That's completely unnecessary in, in the new framework because uh, if the robot is useful to humans, in other words, if it is, if it is helping at all to, to uh, help, help us satisfy our preferences, then that's a reason for it to stay alive. Right? Otherwise, there is none. Right? If it's if it's completely useless to us, or or its continued existence is harmful to us, uh, then absolutely it should uh, it should get rid of itself. And if uh, if you watch the movie Interstellar, which is from the AI point of view, I think one of the uh, the most accurate uh, and and I think reasonable depictions of of AI how it should work with us. Um, one of the robots, Tars, uh, just commit suicide because, you know, it's, uh, I think it's, it's mass is somehow causing a problem with, uh, with the black hole. And so it says, okay, I'm, I'll, I'm, I'm going off into the black hole so that the humans can escape. Uh, and it's completely happy. And the humans are really upset saying, no, no, no. And that's because they, they, uh, they, they probably thought, you know, that they were brought up on Asimov and they should realize that actually, no, this is entirely reasonable. One of the things that I very much hope by having you come to do this podcast with us is that everybody who's listening will end up to being much more informed about artificial intelligence because there's so much um, that's incorrect about AI um, that we see in the media, etc. And, you know, you've just given the prestigious BBC Wreath Lectures and uh, reaching a lot of people through your work. Um, I know it's always hard, but what would be the vital thing that you want our listeners to take away about artificial intelligence? Uh, as we know from business memos, there are always three three points <laughs> I'd like to get across here. Um, and um, so I think the first point is that, you know, AI is a technology it isn't intrinsically good or evil. Uh, that decision is up to us, right? We can use it well or we can misuse it. Um, there are risks from poorly designed AI systems, uh, particularly ones pursuing the wrong object, wrongly specified objectives. Um, and uh, I actually think we've given algorithms in general, not just AI systems, but algorithms in general, I think we've given them a free pass uh, for far too long, right? And it, if you think back, there was a time when we gave pharmaceuticals a free pass. There was no FDA or other, you know, agency regulating medicines, and hundreds of thousands of people uh, were killed and injured by poorly formulated uh, medicines, by fake medicines, uh, you name it. And eventually, over about a century, we developed a regulatory system for medicines that, you know, it's expensive, but most people think it's a good thing that we have it. And uh, we are nowhere close to having anything like that for algorithms, even though, even to perhaps to a greater extent than medicines, these algorithms are having a massive effect on billions of people in the world. Um, and uh, I don't think it's reasonable to assume that it's necessarily going to be a good effect. Uh, and I think government, governments now are waking up to this uh, and really uh, struggling to figure out how to regulate uh, and, and while not actually making a mess of things with, uh, with things that are too restrictive. So second point, um, I know we've talked uh, quite a bit about sort of dystopian outcomes, but the upside potential for AI is enormous, right? And, and going back to Keynes, yes, it really could enable us to live wisely and agreeably and well, free from the struggle for existence that's characterized the whole of human history. You know, up to now, we haven't had a choice. You know, we have to get out of bed, you know, otherwise we'll die of starvation. And uh, in the future, we will have a choice. I hope that we don't just choose to stay in bed. Uh, we'll have, but we want to have other reasons to get out of bed so that so we can actually uh, live rich, interesting, fulfilling lives. Uh, and that was uh, something that, uh, Keynes thought about and predicted and looked forward to, but uh, isn't going to happen automatically. There's all kinds of dystopian outcomes, even when uh, this golden age comes. 
And then the third point is that whatever the movies tell you, the machines becoming conscious and deciding that they hate humans and wanting to kill us uh, is not really on the cards. An optimistic ending there from Stuart Russell, his professor of computer science and head of the Center for Human Compatible AI at the University of California, Berkeley. His book is called Human Compatible, Artificial Intelligence and the Problem of Control. And you can hear his wreath lectures on a podcast from the BBC. And there's lots of stuff about AI on the World Economic Forum website, including that Ipsos poll I mentioned at the start of the show and a report co-written by Stuart called Positive AI Economic Futures. And there's also a new guide for company leaders on how to work with AI called the AI C-Suite Toolkit. I'll put links to those on the blog accompanying this show and on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club on Facebook. Please join us there to discuss anything you've heard or you want to hear on our podcast. This episode of Radio Davos was presented by me, Robin Pomeroy, with Kay Firth Butterfield. Thanks to my colleagues Gail Markovitz and Alex Court. Studio production was by Gareth Nolan. We'll be back next week, but for now, thanks to you for listening and goodbye.